Amen. Well, it's good to see you this morning, church family. It is officially August, and more than that, I was told that it is the last day that you'll ever see Daniel Reclue because apparently I said last week, this week would be the end of Daniel, and, but uh, yeah, he just said, fortunately, we have another, so I'm not sure where McGinty is, but uh, no, we're kidding. It is, though, however, after 14 weeks, we have finally reached the end of the book of Daniel. Uh, we've seen, uh, for those of you familiar, we've seen stories you would have learned in Sunday school from childhood, and, and we've, we've walked through prophecy that will just make your mind spin. And when we get to the end of it, essentially today, we're going to answer a, really a question for Daniel in the text of, what do I do with all this? But as we come to this, let me just remind all of us, as, as we've walked through Daniel, at the heart of Daniel is really this question of application for us as, as Christians today. How do we walk faithfully with God when it seems like we are living in exile in a hostile and broken world? That's where we've been. That's where we've been moving. And, and so we come back to that question today. And if you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12 says this in verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, now let's pause for a second, because this is not just something separate. Let me remind you where we've been. If we back up, Daniel is over 80 years old at this point, having been brought into exile sometime around the age of 15, most likely. So he has spent the last 65 years living in Babylon. He has worked in the highest of, of administrative and government offices under the kings of Babylon and now the kings of Persia. We know beginning back in Daniel 2, likely when, when he was maybe 18 or 20, around that time, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of, of the rest of the empires until the kingdom of God would come to the world, and, and Daniel interpreted. So not only has Daniel had this long ministry, but, but this ministry dealing with prophecy has, has gone on for most of Daniel's life, that God has been including him and showing him and using him. And and here he gets to this point at the end where in Daniel chapter 10, he's out by the Tigris River and 21 days prior, three weeks prior, he has had a vision of the end of times. And it has so disturbed him, this vision filled with battles, it has so disturbed him that he has spent three weeks in prayer and fasting and just as a wreck. And, and if you remember Daniel 10, all of a sudden he sees this brilliant being hovering over the river, the Tigris River, and describes him in terms like skin with burnished bronze, eyes of fire, one who's hovering over the rivers, almost a word-for-word -word description of Jesus from Revelation chapter 1. And so he sees this vision of God over the Tigris River, and then all of a sudden an angel shows up. He, he falls down fat, he, he passes out before God and an angel shows up, wakes him up, and the angel begins to talk to him and says, Daniel, you're beloved by God. God's heard your prayers. He sent me the moment you began to pray. Sorry that I'm here 21 days later, but I've been battling a, a demonic power, the prince of Persia. And here I am to, to explain and bring understanding to you of this vision you've had, which is of what will happen to your people, the people of Israel at the end of times. And then it starts in chapter 11, and he proceeds to begin to explain. And if you'll remember chapter 11, two halves, the first half, verses 1 through 35, describe what to us has already been fulfilled in history under the kings of Persia and Greece and the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid 
kingdoms, ending with Antiochus Epiphanes, that wicked ruler. And then in verse 36, everything shifts. And we start talking about a king who's even greater than Antiochus Epiphanes, who will come and and do far worse things to God's people, who will seemingly care for them and be at peace with them and enter a covenant with them, and then three and a half years into it will commit an abomination which causes desolation and will persecute the people of God in a way that has been unseen in human history. And but then the angel explains that at that time, God would raise up and God would bring deliverance to his people. And he describes the resurrection of the dead and the glory that awaits for those who are in Christ. And it's at the end of that, at the end of our hope, that he says, but as for you, Daniel, now that you've been given everything that's going to happen to the people of God for the rest of history, as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others, two other angels were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And then one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will, how long will it be until the end of these wonders which have begun? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they, as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events would be complete. As for me, I heard this, but I could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting, he who waits with expectant and certain hope and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So Daniel, having had all of this takes place, all of a sudden the angel now concludes and he says, Daniel, here's what you need to do. You need to conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Now that's strange language for us. It's accurate. But it is strange because to us in English, that sounds like, hey, Daniel, take all this information and keep it secret. To which you would say Daniel did a very horrible job considering the book of Daniel has been available for public consumption since he wrote it. That's not the, the, the it's, a, it's a Hebrew idea that essentially means this, Daniel, record these words accurately and authoritatively and preserve them in a way that prohibits them from being tampered with or altered. Because those who come after you will need to know them. That's what the idea of conceal and seal up is. And in fact, he says, he says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to record them down accurately and authoritatively. You're going to preserve them lest they be tampered with or altered because there's coming a time, and it uses this phrase, many will run to or fro. 
It's a phrase used to describe Satan and his scouring of the earth in Job chapter 1. It's a phrase used to describe the eyes of the Lord searching and scrutinizing and looking through the earth to see whose hearts are truly His. It's a word that's used to describe Joab's detailed survey of of Israel's land here. It's, It's a word that describes an intense, directed, focused, diligent pursuit. And it says, and the knowledge will abound. Now, to be honest, if you dig into this, there's, there's, there's two ways you can understand it. Either one, on the part of God's people, it's going to take a diligent, concentrated, hard work of effort to really study and understand these words, and it, but in that effort, the knowledge of truth will abound. Now, there's a flip side to it, because in Amos chapter 8, Just a few books later, it says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or thirst for water, but rather hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, from north even to east. They will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but then they will not find it. Implying that it can also mean that as the days come closer to the end, You will find in the world people scouring about, active and busy, moving around here and there, filling their minds with empty knowledge that does nothing to lead one to the truth of life and purpose, fulfillment, hope, on and on. So there's two senses in which you can understand this, both of which we find true in reality. So he says, conceal this up because here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a scouring for truth. Knowledge will increase. So Daniel hears this command and he looks back up and he sees two more angels standing on either side of the banks of the river. And one of them proceeds to ask this vision of God, the, the man in linen hovering over the waters. I personally think it's, it's a, an appearance of, of Jesus pre his incarnation. It's my own opinion, but... Nonetheless, it's, it's, a, it's a picture of God, and they, they ask God, because remember, the angels don't know. Jesus tells us the angels don't know the dates or times. They're observers. They're servants, ministers to the people of God. Powerful, glorious, but they don't know. And here's, this is part of why I think this is God, because an angel wouldn't be able to answer the question. Not only that, but when it says he raises his right hand and his left and swears by the Most High, that that language only appears one other time in Scripture. It's in Deuteronomy 32 when God is speaking and he says, it is I who am speaking, I raise my hand and declare by myself. And so the angel's question is simple. When, When these wonders start to take place, now what wonders? That would be the wonders that we see in verse 36 of chapter 11, these wonders where the Antichrist will all of a sudden rip off the mask of of peace, rip up the covenant, and will show himself for for who the Antichrist really is. He is is the dragon, Satan. He is is Satan's beast, Revelation 13. He is the man of lawlessness, 2 uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. When he shows him, from the time these wonders start, it says time, times, and half a time. Now, here's here's what that means, real simple. Time times half a time. Time, in this context, equals one year. So, one year plus two years plus half a year. I don't know how to do half a year with my pinky. Uh, Half a year. It's three and a half years. 
We see this language. We've already seen it two other times in Daniel. We'll see it, or sorry, we've seen it one other time in Daniel, and we'll see it four different times in the book of Revelation. Time times half a times, three and a half years, 42 months. The reality is from the moment the Antichrist enters into the temple of God and declares himself to be God and, and himself to be worthy of all worship, from the moment that happens, there will be three and a half years of intense persecution against the people of God unlike anything the world has ever seen. We've already seen that. Some of what I'm telling you are from past sermons in Daniel. Some of it we find in other parts of, of Scripture. But he says for time, times, and half a time, and in that three and a half years, it says as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be complete. Now that's a strange statement. It's a strange statement. Uh, one, we need to understand holy people in this context is dealing with the, the people of Israel, not necessarily you and I as Gentiles who are part of the body of Christ the church, but specifically with the people of Israel, those who are ethnically Jews, who are part of the, what we would call the geopolitical people of Israel. That's what's being referred to here. And it says that they're going to be shattered, broken into pieces. That just sounds strange. Like the end doesn't happen until the whole So Daniel asks a question, he's, he, and he gets to the point. What's going to be the outcome? What At the end of all this, that's great I've seen all of this. This is absolutely terrifying. How's it end? And the answer he gets from God, is he says, again, he reminds him, you're going to conceal sillies up until the end of time. Everything we've shown you, you're going to preserve it accurately because it's coming. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. Many, if you'll remember, the many in Daniel in these prophecy passages is also another way of referencing Israel. He says the people of Israel are going to be purged, purified, and refined. Now this fits with language we find out in, in many of the other prophets of the Old Testament. Things like Isaiah chapter 4 speak of the people of Israel being refined and broken and brought to a, a place of brokenness where they finally repent of their rebellion against the Lord. You see this in, in places like the book of Zechariah that speaks to a time coming when the, when the people of Israel who have for the last 2,000 years rejected their Messiah, our Messiah too, the one true Messiah Jesus, that there is coming a point where in the years, the seven years of tribulation, specifically that last three and a half, at the very beginning of the seven years, the people of Israel, they're going to enter into, we've already seen this, Daniel chapter 9, they're going to enter into a covenant of peace with the Antichrist who will seem like their Savior. And halfway through, he will reveal his true colors and turn on them. And in that last three and a half years, what's ultimately going to happen is God is going to use that suffering, that, that tribulation. Remember, God's sovereign even in the years of tribulation. He's going to use it to purge, to refine, to remove out their sin and their rebellion, ultimately bringing the people of Israel to a place where they will finally turn, fall on their knees in repentance, and acknowledge, Jesus, you are the Messiah, which is what the 144,000 of Revelation reference, a mass turning of the people of Israel to faith in God. And when that happens, then the end will come. 
So what God is doing in that strange statement is not, well, God's going to let all his people lose. No, God made a covenant with the people of Israel that he would be their God and they would be his people. He made a covenant with the people of Israel that though in their rebellion he scattered them to the nations, he would gather them back and bring them back. And I've got great news about our God. God doesn't enter into covenants and give his word on things he doesn't finish. And so the last work of human history is to finish the work he started even in the people of Israel who other than two generations according to Scripture have always walked in rebellion against him. And that's great news for us, church family, because our God is the same God and he is faithful to finish according to, to Paul and to the letter in Philippians everything he started of his purpose in our lives. He is a covenant-keeping, faithful to his word, God. And he says, listen, and in this time, the wicked will not understand. You've got two groups. You've got the wicked. They're not going to understand. They're going to scour to and fro, reading self-help books, following this Instagrammer, listening to this TikToker, put, turning into this blogger. They're going to go and find whatever they want to tickle their ears and not understand anything that's happening. But those with insight, you remember that from the last several weeks? That if we're going to walk faithfully with God, we've got to do it as people with insight and understanding that comes out of knowing God truly and walking with God rightly. That those with insight will understand. Those with insight are going to recognize the signs. Those with insight are going to discern the times. Those with insight are going to know what to do despite the fact that doing it will cost them everything. But they're going to do it because they have heeded the Word of God written down and they know what's coming. See, he doesn't end there in his answer. He says, from the time that the regular sacrifice, that is the sacrifice of Jewish custom is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, from the time of that moment there would be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting, who, who waits with, an, with a patience and an expectance knowing something is coming and it is guaranteed. How blessed is he who waits like that and attains. And by the way, that word attains implies through effort. There's action involved. There's decisions to be made, steps to take. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains the 1335 days. Now, listen. And we'll come over, we're going to do a little kind of wrap-up summary of the prophecy of Daniel Wednesday night, so I encourage you to be there. Uh, there's all sorts of guesses on what exactly these numbers mean, and, and, and the focus of the sermon today has nothing to do with those guesses, so we're not going there this morning. Here is the simple point, and it's very obvious. Which one of those two numbers is bigger? Well, 1335. The implication is this rough period goes 1290 days those with insight and understanding who are waiting with expectant hope, who are making decisions in light of the truth, heeding the word of God, those who attain to the 1335 days, those who endure to the end, blessed. Because it doesn't end on a sour note. It ends with his return and his kingdom forevermore. What an answer. How does this all end? 
This all ends, Daniel, with me as God being faithful to keep my covenant and my every last word. This all ends with those who have insight and understanding, heeding my word, living in light of it with an expectant hope. This all ends with those, those who are truly mine, enduring to the end. This all ends with my victory and kingdom. Wow. But then look what he tells Daniel. But as for you, Daniel, you're not living in those days. Go your way to the end, meaning go back, sit down at your desk, do whatever work in retirement the king of Persia is having you do. Do it with excellence like you've always done. Pray, worship me. Go back, faithfully live your life until the end, until your end, the end of your days. Then you will enter into rest. You'll be at rest because your body will die, but your soul will depart and be with the Lord in heaven. And then rise again at that time when Jesus returns, you, you will be reunited, your soul, with a resurrected, glorified body. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 12. For your allotted portion, that is, for your eternal reward that, that I have set aside and that I delight to give you in eternity in the new heaven and new earth. Go your way, Daniel. Three times in the passage, he tells Daniel, go your way, go your way go your way. You see, church family, here's the reality. Our God is sovereign. We've said it for 14 straight weeks because it's the overarching theological theme of the book of Daniel. Our God is sovereign, and He is faithful to His Word. His Word, which comes to pass with flawless precision. His Word, which He gives to us so that we might walk with insight and understanding, so that we might endure to the destined end, considering all that we have heard and seen, considering all that Daniel has heard and seen. Here's the ultimate call from the text today, church family. We are called to endure by heeding the Word of God and simply living faithfully. We're called to endure, church family. Understand today, God is looking for a 1335 people. God is looking for a people who will endure to the end in faithfulness. He is looking for a people who will refuse to bow down to the latest fad or idol of the day, a people who will endure no matter the persecution, the danger, the discouragement, and even the discipline. Church family, we are called, us brothers and sisters, we are called to endure to the end whether that be the end of our days in this world or whether the end of our days in this world be the end of history, we are called to endure to the end of this world to the moment of His return. We're called to endure. We're not called to be trendy or cutting edge, to be accepted or praised by man. We're called to endure for the glory of God. And by the way, to endure means to bear up under adversity. You don't endure lounging on a, on, on, a, on a sofa next to the beach. There's nothing to endure there. Endurance implies adversity. You endure walking to the car in this heat. You endure if your air condition goes out. Endurance implies adversity. It implies that under adversity, we bear up and encourage, we, in strength, we stand firm, and we unwavering stand in one position and give away no ground. And what's that position? It's our position in Christ. If you've been saved by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you and I have been set in the heavenly places. We are to stand where Jesus stands on every issue. 
We're to stand how Jesus stands. We're, we're to be found when, when his light finally creeps into the darkness of the valley of this world. It should be seen that we are on our knees right at his feet. Humbly positioned right where he is. This is what it means to endure. Our call to endure, church family, is to endure as parents. It's hard to be a parent. It's hard to be a parent today. God's got words for how to parent, and he's called us to endure in it. Grandparents, he's called us to endure, church family, as citizens. Citizens of heaven who living in America have citizenship here and have to live out citizenship of heaven in America. He's called us to endure as godly co-workers, as godly students, as godly friends. For those of you about to go to college, he is sending you off to college and his call for your life is to endure and to shine to endure in spite of what they teach, to endure in spite of what the pressure is, to endure at our homes, to endure in our jobs. The call is to endure in church family. Endurance takes effort. Did you catch, I pointed it out. Blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains. You and I do not drift into endurance. You and I have to make decisions in light of truth, to endure. And sometimes if we, if we misunderstand, if we think that endurance means winning, that's a real big pressure to live with. But I've got wonderful news for those of us in Christ. Our call is never to win. And there is no pressure of victory sitting on our back. Jesus already won. The pressure of victory set on Him on the cross. It's validated because he's risen. You and I don't have the pressure of having to win the day. The day's already been won. The victory is his. He has placed us and seated us up high in the heavenly places. Our call is to just stand firm and endure. It's to not back down. It's to not get distracted. It's, not to, it's to not capitulate to the seductive, tempting lies of the enemy and illusions of culture. It's to endure. Let me put it to you this way. I'll, I, if you think about hiking trail, God doesn't call us to go, okay, there's the top of the mountain. Now you figure out how to get there. There's all sorts of things along the way that are going to kill you, and there's no trail, but you get there. That's not how it works. But that's how it, when we think it all depends on us, that's how we think it works. No, the reality is God said, that's, that's the end up there. And I've already gone up and carved the trail. I've already defeated anything that could absolutely destroy you. And not only have I already gone up and made the trail there, but I go with you on the trail to strengthen you, to encourage you, to use my staff to pull you back on the, the trail when you as a little sheep wander off. So don't be dismayed, don't be discouraged. The pressure of victory doesn't sit on us. What sits on us is the call to accountability, to making a simple, responsible decision to endure. Church family, God has called us to endure. We must not give up. We must pay the price. We must fight the fight. We must run the race. We must not quit before we finish. And you say, well, how are we gonna do it? Ha! Ah, we're called to endure by heeding the word of God. You catch that twice in the passage. Daniel, conceal it, seal it up, write it down. It's, it's coming for the end. Write it down, mark it authoritatively and accurately because people are gonna need it. Church family, if we are going to be believers who endure, we must 
heed his word. We must heed his word. We won't endure if we ignore his word. You know why? Because it's his word which tells us to endure. It's his word which tells us why we must endure, how we are able to endure, what it means to endure, and that it's worth it to endure no matter the cost. It's it's his word which tells us to go live lives faithfully. When you come to the end, die peacefully and restfully in Christ. Go, await the time of resurrection. Live a life worthy of the allotted reward God desires to give you. It's his word which tells us this. It's his word which tells us, church family, that we don't have enough insight on our own. We don't have the understanding for how to make decisions and live and move and breathe in these days. You feel overwhelmed by by everything going on today? You can feel confused by the amount of false teachers and prophets that are out there twisting the truth of God, calling you to this, this, and this? You feel overwhelmed by all the decisions that there are to make? You feel overwhelmed by the, the, the political chaos unseen in most of our lifetime? Got great news for you. You should feel overwhelmed because we don't have the insight and understanding on our own, but we do have a choice to run around to or fro like those who lack insight and fill with empty knowledge or like those with insight to turn to the Word of God, the Word which tells us we are weak, but He is strong. We are foolish, but He is wise. We need counsel, help, and strength, and the Holy Spirit who lives within is called the helper, counselor, and the one who strengthens. To heed His Word simply means, church family, that if He said it, we accept it and submit to it. We believe it because He's true. If he said, this is how I am, I am holy. If he said, I am holy and these things are pleasing to me and these things are not pleasing to me, this is righteous, this is sin, we don't argue with it. We don't try to twist it in light of culture. We just accept what he says because our God is true. It means we accept what he says about him regardless of our feelings. Regardless of what culture says, it means we submit to what he says. It means when his word tells us to do something, we do it. Because he said it, our father said it, our good father said it. It means if he commands it, we do it because he is right. It means if he promised it, then we expect it because he is faithful. Heeding his word means taking his word, taking him at his word. Heeding his word is going to require abiding in Christ. That wasn't planned earlier. I heard Chris read the passage from John talking about abiding in Christ. Look, the whole Christian life is lived by you and I abiding in Christ. Well, how do you do that, Pastor? It's simple. You walk by faith. And I don't mean wishful thinking, Indiana Jones, put your foot out and try to hope that you don't fall off the cliff. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is you confidently resting in that which is true with the full weight of your being, even though it's unseen. Abiding in Christ says, Jesus, you are who you say you are. You've done what you say, and I am going to daily take captive the thoughts of my mind and by faith appropriate your word, your truth. It's going to demand abiding in Christ. It's going to mean heeding the word of God is going to then produce in us. It's going to result in us walking in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, walking in submission to the Holy Spirit and walking by the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit. See, church family, to to, to endure to the end demands courage, demands strength, demands conviction, and you and I don't have that in and of ourselves. 
And nor is it as simple as just, well, okay, if I just read enough of the Bible, listen, you can read enough of the Bible all day long, and if you're not in Christ and therefore having the Holy Spirit, God himself, indwelling inside of you, you're still not going to have it. The proof that you're in Christ is not that you can read the Bible. The proof that you're in Christ is that the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of you from the point of salvation, and he enables you to understand and apply the Bible. So when we say heeding the word, I'm not just simply meaning let's, let's you know, let's start a Awanas for adults. See how many verses we can memorize. What I mean by heeding the word is we really take seriously what the word says and we take serious what the word says. It tells us who he is. It tells us who we are if in fact we're in him. And it tells us how he calls us to live. It tells us the Holy Spirit lives within us. It tells us how to walk with the spirit. And so as we heed his word in submission to the spirit, we'll endure. You say, well, what are we enduring to do? And this comes down to what I think is the most shocking ending to the book of Daniel. Because all of us have probably at some point been at some youth-related thing, and you got the camp speaker up there, and they're given the call to live on fire for Jesus. Live as if he's coming back tomorrow. Well, how would you live if you knew he was coming back tomorrow? And your mind runs, well, I'd quit my job, and I'd go out and street preach, and I'd go, and we come up with all this stuff. Do you know what God says? If you want to live like he's coming back tomorrow, you know what the call is? To wake up tomorrow and be faithful. Go. Go your way, Daniel. Go your way, church family. You're not living in the days of Antiochus. You're not yet living in the days of the Antichrist. And even if you were living in the days of the Antichrist, the call's the same. Endure to the end by heeding the word of God. And what is it we're enduring doing? Being faithful. Simple-hearted faithfulness. Our response to everything in Daniel is not to live in fear of the days we live in. It's not to live in speculation about when is he coming back and what is this. It doesn't mean we can't talk about the end times, but not to live in some kind of speculation. It's to go out and live the lives God has given us faithful. Listen, listen how, uh, listen how Paul writes to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. But you, brothers and sisters, you're not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Here's what he says. I don't need to write anymore about the end times to you. You already know it's coming. It's going to catch the world unaware. You're not in the dark. You're sons of the light. We're not of the night and of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. And then you know what he describes for the rest of the book of, of Thessalonians? What, what being sober, living, in light of, living faithfully in light of the end is? Putting on the armor of God. Encouraging one another and building one another up in the church. Diligently laboring. Encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with everyone, not repaying evil for evil. Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in everything, not quenching the Spirit. Church family, if we really understand, if we really live like people with insight and understanding, then, you know, then what it means when we understand all that Daniel has shown us, what it means, let me put it really simple. It means if you're a dad in the room, 
All of this should drive you in greater humbleness to walk in the Holy Spirit to be a more godly dad. Your husband, a wife in the room, all of this should drive you to, in humility to God, live out your role as husband and wife more faithfully. You're a worker in this room, you have a job. All of this should drive you to wake up tomorrow morning and go into that job and do everything you do as if you're doing it for Jesus Christ himself. Your neighbor, then you should take all of how Jesus teaches us to live and seek to be a more faithful neighbor, witness to the gospel to those who live around you. Your student, then unlike all your friends who just see school as something to check off and don't care and this or that, you're to apply yourself and, and to grow in wisdom and favor and stature with God and men. You're to, you're to work as hard unto the Lord with every piece of homework you have. Because any truth you learn about this world is only true because he made it. And you can worship him just as much studying physics and chemistry and even grammar as you can sing in your favorite praise song. What does it mean? Church family means we, we be a more committed member of a local church. We don't get so distracted that we don't show up, but less than twice a month, it means we continue to be faithful to steward the resources of our lives. We're faithful to tithe, faithful to serve. We're faithful to, to use our spiritual gift. It means we become more tenacious believers of the word. It means we become more fierce prayer warriors, praying the things continuously that he has taught us to pray. It becomes, we be, means we be a more resolute resistor of, Tim, a, a, a resistor to, of temptation and sin. It means, we become a wiser, a wiser user of time. It means we're faithful even in the small things. Think how Daniel started off, church family. Hey, Daniel, you're in exile. You're God seemingly defeated. You've got this opportunity to be one of the king's special people, King Nebuchadnezzar. Here's some food. It's the best you'll ever have in your life. And he said, no, I could eat it but it would violate my conscience before my God and I will not be unfaithful even in the small things. Ironically, how the book of Daniel begins is the very same command God gives to Daniel at the end, even when he's over 80 years old, having lived by and large a more faithful life than most of us could ever sniff at. So I don't care what age you are in this room today, church family. You could be five, you could be 85. The call for you and I, to, as in light of the end, in light of what is coming, the call to endure by heeding his word drives us to wake up tomorrow, drives us to go get out in our car and go wherever we're going, drives us to do it as people who walk in simple-hearted faithfulness. That's the call. And I think that's a struggle for some of us. Because if you study American church history, we seem to like mountaintop experiences revival. But we seem to like mountaintop experiences with zip lines from one mountaintop to the next. Whereas when you read Scripture, God seems to be a God who really likes to take His people up to a mountaintop, show them His glory, teach them something new, and then walk them down the mountain and through the valley of the shadow of death. God sure likes the valleys where what we learned here is ingrained in and brought into our lives in a way that produces faithfulness, enduring 
faithfulness, church family. What, what, what would we do if, if the Lord was coming back tomorrow? I hope we could say, well, we wouldn't change anything because we're going to get up tomorrow and be faithful just like we're being today. Reality is many of us probably go, you know, in light of what it means to be faithful, I'd have to change some things to li- get up and live tomorrow. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. Don't think on that list. There's not things that don't pierce my heart, even as pastor. I got the same ability to waste time like you do as well. But church family, here's the reality. Our God is sovereign. He is both faithful and powerful. He will fulfill His word. His return is certain. There are things that are going to happen between now and His return, things that are going to going to seem like it's going to get worse and worse, but here's the reality. He comes back, he wins, and the call for us today is to endure to the end. We're not going to endure if we don't heed his word, but if we heed his word, walking by the Spirit, we will endure and and we'll know that what we're to endure in is not some great, glorious, grandiose, change the world for Jesus. It's just to be faithful, to be who he made you to be, to do what he made you to do, and to enjoy doing it all, loving him with all of your being. There's a great song, I love it, by Rich Mullins called My Deliverer. It says, My Deliverer is coming. My Deliverer is standing by. He will never break a promise, for He has written it on the sky. Church family, our Deliverer is coming. When He comes, may He find us in this church to be faithful. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to You. You are good. You are worthy. You are worthy of the cost of faithfulness. You are worthy of standing where you stand. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of whatever dishonor is shown to us in this world because we choose to stand where you stand on every issue, because we choose to represent you accurately to a world that wants to twist you and and manipulate who you are to try to justify their own sin. And the sad part is, in doing that, a world that does not realize it is taking one small step towards death every moment. So Jesus, you know where each one of us are at. Holy Spirit, you know where you're convicting, you know where you're encouraging, you know how you're moving. In this time of invitation and in the moments that follow as we go back home, Holy Spirit, may we, may we respond to you in humility, and surrender. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.